0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Tuesday, December 6th, and I am very pleased to have with me today international legal expert in business and human rights, Tara Van Ho. Tara is a senior lecturer at the University of Essex in the UK, and she is co-director of the Essex Business and Human Rights Project from which she advises governments, international organizations, and non-governmental organizations on the impacts of investment laws and treaties on human rights, particularly in post-conflict situations. Um, and you can follow her on Twitter. That's at Tara Van Ho, T-A-R-A-V-A-N-H-O. And also if Twitter falls apart, you can follow her on Mastodon and it's Tara Van Ho at B-H-R-E dot social. So Tara, Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited.
0: So I'm going to offer just some really quick context, you know, Mm -hmm. for folks who are tuning in and wondering why we're having an expert on business and human rights law on a podcast that tends to be about things related to Palestine, Israel, Middle East, that sort of thing. The point is that these... These issues are now intersecting as never before, and they're intersecting in large part because there is this growing movement in the United States that seeks to delegitimize and penalize investors who consider what are called environmental, social and governance, ESG, that's ESG, issues when allocating their clients money. Um, and we've seen this now called by Republicans, it, ESG is the new CRT, right? It's the, the new key, key weapon in the, in the, the culture wars. So um, what does that have to do with us? Um, it has to do with us because Israel has become a key issue and a powerful weapon in this campaign against ESG, where we have officials, and let's be clear, this is from both parties, that's bipartisan, attacking investors, investment analysts, data providers, for basically carrying out global ESG assessments for using the same standards that they would use on everybody else and applying them to Israel and the, the occupied territories. In effect, saying that that is um, a violation, uh, saying that that's anti-Semitism and anti-Israel. Um, so, so basically, we this is something we're focusing on a lot. I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on this with Julia Basha, which I recommend. It was entitled "Free Speech and Palestinian Rights: Weapons and Targets in the Battle Against ESG." And today we have Tara um, because the the. Best example of all of this, the shining example of this battle is the battle that's happening around um, Chicago-based financial services company Morningstar Inc. and its subsidiary Sustainalytics. So for more than a year, uh, they've been under attack, a nonstop media assault led largely by prominent Jewish American organizations and leaders. um, And these are joined by anti-ESG officials, Republican and Democrat. And of course, now this is going to be spearheaded by the ADL, which has recently purchased or acquired JLENS, which is the Jewish community's ESG-focused organization, Um, and and basically accusing Morningstar of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel bias, blah, blah, blah. So in order to um, address these attacks, um, Morningstar first uh, had it, 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 we can talk about this more. They first brought in a lawyer, uh, some lawyers to to assess what was going on. And basically they found they weren't doing anything wrong but they offered to take a few steps. And then that of course didn't end the attacks. So they they then followed up with a whole new set of policies. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. And to be clear, these policies that they adopted which are really deeply problematic um, have actually not assuaged the critics either and actually seem to have energized the attacks against Morningstar and ESG in general. So. Before we dig into the Morningstar response, I actually, because I have you here, Tara, and you're an expert on the broader issues, can you talk a little bit about something called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, right? the UN, UNGP, um, and how these relate to ESG in general? Because I think that's gonna come up as we discuss more deeply the Morningstar case.
1: Yeah, it's going to come up a lot today. Uh, So the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights were drafted by a man named John Ruggie. He was appointed by the UN to independently assess where are we in terms of legal developments and where should we be in terms of the law when it comes to how businesses impact on human rights in a variety of contexts. So uh, John developed the guiding principles to say where what are our expectations, legally and socially, around how states regulate businesses, how businesses impact on human rights, and what they're supposed to do. It rests on three pillars. The first is that states have a duty to regulate businesses to protect human rights. Uh, that's an ongoing existing legal obligation. It's been around since since uh, human rights law really took framework in, into treaties. Um, the second pillar is the UN, is the business responsibility to respect. And this is where it's a little bit law, but it's also a little social and moral. So it's not as binding, it's not a restatement of the law as it exists the way that the state duty to protect is, but it is setting out the international legal expectations and international social expectations for businesses. And what that says is that businesses need to respect human rights, meaning they shouldn't be interfering actively in the realization of human rights. To assess whether or not they're doing that and what steps they need to take in response to that, they're supposed to do what's called human rights due diligence, where they identify how they pose, through their operations, their products, their relationships with other actors, how do they pose risks to human rights? And by human rights, we're talking about internationally defined human rights, right? Like, I, I recognize everybody has their own understanding of what a human right is and when their human rights are breached. But international law has a much narrower list than some people would like. Also, in fairness, a much broader list than other people would like. But uh, a list that really has solidified around civil and political rights, economic, social, and cultural rights, um, You know, the right to free speech as it's defined under international law, rather than any individual state's understanding of the law. So John said, or the guiding principles now say, because they were eventually ratified or or adopted um, by states at the UN Human Rights Council. And so the Human Rights Council unanimously endorsed these. and, And what they say is businesses need to take that step in accounting for their human rights impacts. If they cause or contribute to a violation, and those have very specific technical standards behind them, if they cause or contribute to a violation, they owe reparations, meaning they need to stop causing the harm or contributing to it. They need to terminate any relationships that are leading them to be participating in violations. And they need to set up steps to hear complaints against them and fundamentally to provide compensation to those who have been harmed or other forms of reparations. So so reparations under international law includes things like issuing a public apology, acknowledging your wrongdoing, Um, and adopting reforms. So all of that sort of fits within what the UN guiding principles expect of businesses. And now because of how they've been universally adopted by or unanimously adopted by the Human Rights Council, universally endorsed by states and businesses, um, it was really NGOs and academics like me who were sort of like, ah, this doesn't go far enough. But states and businesses agree that this is the international standard. This is what can be expected of them. Um, And now it's being implemented into domestic laws, particularly in Europe, but not exclusively, but particularly in Europe. Uh, So it's becoming the standard. It also, for the purposes of our conversation today, it sets the baseline for the S and ESG assessments. So now for the international community, when you talk about is a business meeting its sustainability or, or social responsibilities, the human rights component is measured against the UN guiding principles on business and human rights.
0: So I will also put the document into the notes with this podcast, so people can read for themselves. It actually is—it's really, I think, fascinating reading. There's a lot of a lot of thought went into this, um, and I, the, again, this is—I think what's really important when, uh, to have this as the baseline for this conversation is when we talk about that S and ESG. It's not it, It's not based on like having some analysts come in and say, well, we think this is a problem or we think we should look at this. There actually is an objective standard out there, right? Yeah. That is the baseline from which everyone is supposed to be working. And everyone in theory has agreed to be working from, correct?
1: Exactly, that's exactly right.
0: Okay, so with that (laughs) as the starting point, (laughs) so I'm gonna also put into the notes from this podcast, the um, statement that Morningstar issued on October 31st of this year. Um, That statement includes the five points, the five policy changes that they've made. So what I'd like to do now is actually, I'm gonna go through those points with you one by one and let you explain what is the problem. And I may hint at my concerns as we go. So starting with the Morningstar point number one, I'm gonna quote this. Sustainalytics will provide additional documented guidance to ensure that its analysts understand that business activity, including but not limited to such sectors as telecommunications, banking, real estate and construction within the regions linked to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or related to Israel's defense against terrorism do not give rise to a presumption that there is a human rights concern. So essentially what they're saying is just because, for instance, we're talking about um, banking activity that's in settlements in the occupied territories or real estate and construction activities that's an area that's by Israeli, or it's conducted with Israeli companies in areas over which Israel does not have sovereignty under international law even under, under its own laws, that this should not give rise to a presumption that there are human rights concerns to be looked at. So can you talk about how that that sentence squares with the UN guiding principles? So
1: simply, it doesn't square at all. Uh, So the UN GPs recognize that there is always an inherent heightened risk of human rights abuses in situations of conflict. Full stop, all the research suggests that, years of doing human rights work suggests that when you're talking about a conflict situation, there's just an inherent fragility there. And so when you have a, high, a conflict situation, they expect enhanced or heightened human rights due diligence, meaning more routine assessments, digging a little bit deeper into the corporation's activities, checking more frequently with stakeholders on the ground, really monitoring kind of as closely as you can what's happening and how the business is interacting with the conflicts dynamics to create bigger risks or to mitigate risks, it's really about that sort of intersection between the human rights and the conflict dynamics and the businesses operations that need to just be really teased out quite quite closely. Um, And when we talk about conflict-affected areas within the guiding principles, we're we're really looking at three different stages, right? Pre-conflict, during a conflict and post-conflict. Now, on the two ends, the pre-conflict and the post-conflict, there's sometimes some discretion that can be applied, there can be debates. When it comes to the conflict affected period, like when are you in a conflict? There's where international law takes over. We we have legal definitions as to what constitutes an armed conflict. And anytime that you're in a situation of occupation, legally, and again, that's a legal term, it's not a political term. I know people wanna make it a political term. It's a legal term. And legally, when you're in a situation of occupation, you are, you are bound by the rules that govern the laws of armed conflict. It is treated as if it is always an ongoing armed conflict. And that's because occupation is supposed to not exist, right? Like it, 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 the, the default is that we don't want situations of occupation just like we don't want situations of armed conflict. And in order to occupy a territory, generally speaking, you're going to need the violence that you would have within an armed conflict. When it comes to Israel and Palestine, there's not a question that we're in that during a conflict period, right? Um, It's not just the rate of violence between organized armed groups and the Israeli military. It's not just how the relationship plays out between Israel and Palestine um, on the ground on a day-to-day basis, but it's the fact that you're in an occupation. And you have two, two places, two entities, um, Israel and what I'm going to call the state of Palestine, but can also be called the occupied Palestinian territories. So Israel and Palestine, the fact that they're in conflict with each other, the fact that there's, there's an ongoing occupation, it's a conflict-affected area. There's no way around that. And I appreciate, you know, I I sometimes tell people I'm essentially not in talent or looks, but in personality, essentially like a 1980s Miss Universe contestant. Like, I want world peace. And if I could wish and hope world peace into existence, it would already have been done. So I get not wanting something to be true, but it doesn't, like in my business and human rights world, I I don't get to make things magically peaceful when they're not peaceful. Um, And here, you're really talking about a conflict-affected area. And so so to not address it like that leaves Palestinians in a worse position than Ukrainians, than um, Yemenis, than Congolese, uh, than the Burmese, right? Like in all those situations, you would objectively recognize that there's a conflict-affected area. The same thing should be true here. Yeah, Uh, I also have a bit of a concern because the way Morningstar is doing this conflates three distinct legal situations, right? So you have operations in Israel proper, you have operations in Palestine proper, and then you have operations in Israeli settlements in Palestine. And those three uh, situations have to have distinct legal assessments to them. And the fact that Morningstar doesn't seem to be making that distinction in their press release at least, raises concerns about the seriousness with which they're engaging with the situation, the seriousness with which they understand the situation, but overall, it just, it doesn't work with the guiding principles.
0: Thanks, and I wanna dig into that last part a little bit deeper as we go. I mean, I I will say there's something really surreal about looking at the situation, um, particularly, I mean, in, in the occupied territories and saying that this shouldn't give rise to a presumption of a human rights concern when you literally have two different legal systems. One that is the legal system that governs over Israeli citizens, enjoying all the the privileges and protections of Israeli law. And then a military legal system, which is used to control a Palestinian population and which for the past 55 years, has essentially been marshaled to deprive Palestinians of what would normally be the rights and protections of a, of a native population. So to somehow like step back and say, well, we shouldn't presume anything, almost seems to be saying we're actually making a decision in advance that we don't we we believe we're going to treat this entire area as sovereign Israel and Israel can do whatever it wants and it's fine, um, which just seems surreal. Yeah,
1: and even if that, I mean, even if you want to accept Israel as being sovereign in this region which is a political choice that doesn't sit with international law. It is a breach of international law to do that. Um, But if you as an individual want to make that assumption, you still don't get to deny the reality of the structural and systemic human rights violations that are happening on the ground that involve violence by a military against civilians. Or if you want to assume that everyone that Israel kills is is a terrorist. I don't make that presumption. I don't think that it aligns with facts on the ground. Um, if you want to make that presumption, then between the military and a non-state armed group or a military and a rebel group, right, doesn't matter how you cut that. in the end, you're you're talking about a conflict affected area and and a, a place where there is documentation, extensive documentation indicating widespread and systematic human rights abuses and that needs to be taken seriously. That always triggers that heightened due diligence and that assumption that businesses will somehow be involved and figuring out how they're involved, right? That's what human rights due diligence does or heightened human rights due diligence does. Is say There are human rights violations around us. What's the business doing, right? How is it affecting that reality on the ground? Um, And so to skip that first step, is going to affect how valid the conclusions are on that second step, and and I don't see how you can do that with any semblance of
0: integrity on this issue. I, I agree. Um, I want to pick up on something. The second. Let me let me read the second point that Morningstar made. Point number two, sustainable Linux will use geographic names, e.g., West Bank, East Jerusalem, in relevant regions, rather than terms such as "quote occupied Palestinian territory" or "occupied territory." Um, the this stands out to me because the terms matter, and here is a distinction between the terms that are the legal terms under international law, and the terms that are used outside of international law. I don't have a problem with the term West Bank and East Jerusalem. I use it regularly, but you know what? what does it say that that Morningstar effectively is saying? We're not going to use the international legal terms anymore.
1: Yeah, it says that they're not paying attention to the reality on the ground. Um, they're not taking the legal side of this seriously, which is a really deep problem for, some, for an entity that's supposed to be doing objective analysis. Uh, they're engaging with political rhetoric, right? I, I use West Bank and Jer- East Jerusalem all the time as well, but it's usually when I'm talking about something specific. Um, but when it, you're talking about the region as a collective, It's the occupied Palestinian territories or it's the state of Palestine or occupied Palestine, right? And the reason for that is you're talking about which entity has rights over the territory in perpetuity, right? Like which one is supposed to be occupying that land and is supposed to be exercising sovereignty within that land and that territory. And under international law, there's one answer. It's Palestine. The reason that sometimes you hear people say, oh, but it's not it's not real occupation is a sort of um, linguistic loophole that people want to try to find within the law that says that there wasn't a sovereign in Palestine prior to 1947 and therefore Israel can't be occupying something unless there was a state there. Uh, Essentially what it says is that, that, I'm sorry, I'm gonna geek out on international law here for a second. Um, What they're trying to say is that Palestine was essentially terra nullis, which which is the Latin for nobody's land. Um, And that doesn't work with any territory that was a League of Nations mandate, right? So the League of Nations in the the late 1910s, early 1920s, um, set up a series of mandates for formerly colonized lands with the intention of those areas becoming self-determined and self-governing states later. Palestine fell within that, right? Palestine was a League of Nations mandate. The British held the mandate. They didn't hold it particularly well, and they did really deeply problematic issues that exacerbated all the conflicts that we now have today around Israel and Palestine. But the fact that there was a League of Nations mandate showed that that was not terra It's not nobody's land. It was land that belonged to people who had a right to self-determination under international law, who were supposed to be able to choose for themselves their future. Now, that didn't play out. And now we're set in a place where where we're still in conflict. Um, And there's a question there in terms of what's the terminology. And under international law, you have two choices. You can call Israel a colonizer or you can call them an occupier. A colonizer says that they never had a right to exist within that territory. That's not the position I take. I think the state of Israel has a right to exist as a matter of international law. We're done. And that means that they're an occupier, right? Because they're operating in territory outside of what's internationally recognized as their territory. And they're doing so against the wishes of the people who are entitled to that territory. So once you have that as your factual reality, you have an occupation. And trying to sort of, again, trying to manipulate it into something else, I mean... You're as soon as you do that, you're engaging in in political choices, not legal analysis. Um, there's also a thing about sort of breaking how how you break apart Palestine in these situations is a problem, right? If you are if you think that somehow saying East Jerusalem and West Bank is less political than occupied Palestine or occupied Palestinian territory, you don't know what you're doing with the language there, right? Like I mean, it is a political choice and it's a deeply problematic political choice. Israel has claimed to annex East Jerusalem. It is not entitled to do that under international law. Um, And so by breaking those two things apart, you're choosing a side in this conflict and not the legally sound side in this conflict. Um, But also you're suggesting that Palestine itself doesn't exist, right? Like there is a level of denial about the reality of Palestine as an entity or as a state. Um, and that's that deeply troubles me about about how about the choices that Morningstar is making and about the rhetoric that they're embracing. It's it's really dissettling for me.
0: Yeah, I'll say one of the themes and we're going to come back to this again in a bit, but one of the things that comes through reading this Morningstar policy shift, which is framed as we're doing this to be more fair, that it wasn't fair before and now we're making it fair, is that fairness in this context essentially means adopting an Israeli an Israeli lens, an Israeli lens, which is actually very much of a greater Israel lens, a lens that says whatever Israel does between the river and the sea is right and just. There should be a presumption that it's legal, it's correct, it's just, and then From and anything not making that presumption is unfair, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. I will add just because I also geek out on some of this legal stuff that for folks who hear the words occupied and think, well, this is just, uh," if you go back, from the early years of the occupation, the Israeli High Court of Justice has consistently referred to the areas that were acquired in 67 as areas that were held by Israel under, and I quote, belligerent military occupation. You don't see that language referenced all that often anymore, but in the early years, particularly before the the advent of a greater Israel settlement movement that was backed by by both the, the left and the right in Israel, that was the framing and the 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 legal justifications for israeli actions was always framed within israel's rights as an occupier under international law it's only in in the latter years that we've shifted away from that on the israeli side so that's
1: absolutely everything. I'm just gonna say for the audience that everything you just said is legally accurate and, and factual, like I mean, I'm, is- I'm not a
0: lawyer. So I appreciate that. I seem to, to spend a lot of time on this legal stuff. So I really do appreciate that. All right, so we're gonna go to point number three and it's a slightly longer one and there's a lot to unpack. Here's what they said. Sustainalytics will make several changes to hone its approach to media and other sources that it leverages as part of its research into companies' involvement in controversies. Remove sources that follow that following a review with independent third-party experts, no explanation of what that looks like, are determined to be biased and unreliable, Limit mention of divestment activities if they do not create significant risk to a company and cannot be corroborated by additional approved sources, no comment what approved sources means, and remove references to the boycott, divest, and sanctions campaign. Sustainalytics will immediately terminate the use of several sources, including the United Nations Human Rights Council, among others. And as part of the sources review process, Sustainalytics will immediately suspend the use of Who Profits. They name a group specifically. So I want you to talk about what this means for ESG monitoring. You are making reference now to some outside council of of, of experts who will decide what are legitimate sources that can be used. You are explicitly tossing out UN reports, one in my name, the UN Human Rights Council, it says, including others, right? And you are effectively treating sources that are critical of Israel it sounds like, as biased, as presumed to be biased. And most particularly for folks who don't know Who Profits, Who Profits is an NGO on the ground based in Israel. My organization is, is what we fund them. We're very proud to be funders of Who Profits. They are, I would say, the single most important organization on the ground, monitoring the, the how business and human rights inter, intersect on the ground for Palestinian rights. And you now are saying explicitly that they are going to be considered beyond the pale and and shall not be listened to. So what does that mean in terms of doing legitimate ESG monitoring?
1: Well, I mean, in short, it compromises the integrity of the analysis. I mean, first of all, I don't understand when an organization like, like Morningstar says we can't take A variety of sources, some of which we think are more biased than others, and analyze them using multiple points of data to come to a conclusion. If that's not your job as an ESG analyst, I don't know what you're doing. Quite frankly, like, I mean, before we get into all of the specifics of this particular case, I don't know what you're doing because part of why people are relying on you is to be able to gather information from a wide variety of sources uh, with varying levels of credibility and assess them appropriately and give advice based off of that. If that's not your job, everyone else can go and Google themselves, right? Like that, we all have that capacity now. So the point of providing this kind of analysis is that you're really sort of shifting through and using your expertise to guide decision-making. And this isn't using your expertise. This is is something else. Then we get into like the specifics of this. As you mentioned, outside council of experts, I don't know what that means. I don't know who's going to be on that. Um, But I will say, I don't know very many human rights experts um, who would be willing to go into this situation with the parameters that Morningstar has already placed on them and engage in this kind of conduct And the ones that I can think of that would do this are not ones that I respect. They're also not ones that I think are generally internationally respected. Um, So there's a question about who, who are they even going to get to do this in light of the fact that they've already come up with these parameters. They've already made decisions. They've already set up a framework that doesn't comply with international human rights law.
0: Well, I, I, would, I would just say, ba- based on how this process has gone so far, I don't think it is a stretch to assume that that outside the outside experts who would be consulted are going to come from from the community of people that have pressured Morningstar to not hold Israel accountable. I mean, again, ADL just acquired JLEN's. ADL will claim to be the experts on this, and you know, you have you have a, a small. Kitchen cabinet of international legal experts who 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 have for years you know their specialty is explaining why international law doesn't apply to Israel or why it's different in this case.
1: Yeah, and I don't I don't see how that constitutes expert advice at all. Um, it's particularly concerning that they want to do this after they didn't consult any Palestinian NGOs in the development of their their decision making. Right when they list on their website which NGOs that they engaged with. There's not a single Palestinian voice there. And for me, again, when it comes back to what does it mean to do due diligence in this situation? There are three stakeholder groups, three. Three stakeholder groups that matter. They are Palestinians, they're Israelis that live in Israel proper, and they are Israeli settlers that live within the occupied Palestine. Those are your three groups that, that is who your primary focus is. You can, you can actually break down that Palestinians to Palestinians who live within Palestine, Palestinians who live within East Jerusalem and Palestinians who are part of the diaspora. So, so if you want to, if you want to stretch how many stakeholder groups you're consulting or, or list them all, you're, you're still talking five. You're not talking everyone. And the fact that None of those five groups are actually represented, to my knowledge, in in that background note. Some some of um, the Israeli or Israeli settling, settler groups might be in some of those organizations that they list, but that's not on-the-ground consultation with the stakeholders. The well, and who and who
0: profits? Who who is the group that represents Palestinians? Arguably, is now being explicitly.
1: Yes. thrown out.
0: I mean, and yeah. not based on the statement, not based on any specifics. I mean, w- one has a sense, I, I don't know if I'm, if our listeners are aware, there's been enormous work done by, you know, people like Eugene Kontorovich of the Kohelet Forum to to, to discredit who profits not generally by discrediting anything that they've written, but by essentially that there were two reports entitled Who Else Profits. Argument effectively being, well, everyone else gets away with it. If you're trying to hold Israel accountable, that proves that you're anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. It's not because people have disputed the the veracity of their of their facts or their analysis.
1: Exactly. And and that's so so let's move on to who profits. We can then have a conversation about the UN, but who profits is respected for what they do, right? It's it to remove them as a data point in your assessment is to undermine the integrity of your assessment completely. Um, and this notion that because they they have funding to do their work that somehow they're corrupted, um, or to suggest that because we're not holding China to the same standard as we hold Israel to, that it's automatically anti-Semitic, first of all, ignores the fact that there are whole NGOs dedicated to looking at China and Looking at the Uyghur situation there and putting pressure on international corporations to address that, right? Um, so so it's it's disingenuous to suggest that the existence of Who Profits or its focus automatically makes it anti-Semitic. And I do want to come back to the anti-Semitism thing because it is a serious issue. Uh globally, well, off because
0: that's the next point, because the next point in Morningstar's five points is on anti-Semitism. Okay.
1: So we will come back to that. Um but to go back to who profits, um, to sort of take them out of, of your assessment and to to take them out as just kind of a, an independent body because Eugene Kontorovich complains about them. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like a particularly sound way to make independent expert guidance or advice. Um, it at least has never been how I would make an independent assessment of the credibility of an organization. Um, but they are generally, I mean, this the, the attacks on who profits fit into a larger pattern of attacks on, on Palestinian civil society generally. You know, Israel has targeted five NGOs. They are generally understood to be the five most prominent and independent NGOs within Palestine, designated them all terrorist organizations. I should here disclose that I, I did, um, I was a visiting fellow for one of them, Al-Haq, uh, several years ago. Uh, when I was doing research on, on business and human rights and armed conflict. Um, Israel has not provided any evidence publicly to support that. The U.S. government, which normally is perfectly happy to designate NGOs as terrorist organizations, uh, the U.S. government didn't, hasn't uh, followed that and, and has raised serious questions and reservations about the designation. The EU has done it. There have been other other bodies throughout the world. I mean, nobody outside of the a small subset of uh, of extremists on the on the pro Israel side really believe that that uh, these five NGOs are engaged in terrorist activities. They are all well respected, um, and they've all been involved in the international human rights movement for years. I know several of them. It just doesn't. It doesn't hold water in my opinion. And so-
0: I, but- I appreciate you bringing that in because this does fit into the, the demonization yeah. of a sector that produces data. I mean, we, yeah. I, I gave a quote that, that last October when these designations came through that effectively these organizations were being punished for doing their jobs too well,
1: yes, right? They we don't like
0: what they're producing. Um, yeah. For folks who wanna learn more, we have an entire section on our website called Six. So you can find out more about them there. Um, but but absolutely, this this links to 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 that demonization and and effort to shut down information.
1: Yeah, and so so I think that 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 I think that sort of wraps up the who profit part of my of my thought on on that point. And then we move on to the Human Rights Council, which um, I have to start off by admitting I don't know what they're talking about in the Morningstar report, which is a problem because. This is my. Ex- I've been doing this for over a decade. I don't want to say how how long I've been doing this because it always makes me feel slightly older than I like to pretend that I am. Um, but I will say that I teach human rights law. I research on human rights law. I practically live and breathe human rights law. That's all that I do in my life. That's really it, it, that made it sound so much better. I also have family and friends. I swear. Um, but you know this is, this is my bread and butter. And when you say we're going to exclude reports from the Human Rights Council, I have lots of follow-up questions because there's lots of different kinds of reports that come from the UN Human Rights Council, right? So the Human Rights Council itself is a body of states. Um, It's like a lot of other legislative processes or, or bodies. Of course, it's inherently political and you have factions within it. And, you know, and also no one likes to be criticized by it, right? There's, every time you have any criticism, I was just at the UN Human Rights Council last week uh, for a forum on business and human rights. And every time anyone mentioned the word Uyghur, the Chinese representatives held up their placard and had their two minute rebuttal to say, this isn't a real thing, you shouldn't be paying attention to this. And every time Iran is discussed, Iran points out that it's not, it it says that this is all anti-Iran bias, and it's not real. And every time somebody complains about Saudi Arabia, right? Like, I can almost quote verbatim what the states are going to say in response, and it happens pretty consistently. Several years ago, I had a panel on business and human rights and armed conflict, and Israel and Syria were both criticized as part of the panel. They both raised their placards, and they almost said verbatim the same thing about how this this panel was completely biased against them, and nobody was looking at the facts on the ground. And (sighs) Okay, the council itself, political. But the council also produces very few reports in its own name, right? So what it tends to do is assess reports that are provided to it by independent experts. There's one exception to that, it's called the Universal Periodic Review. Every four years, every member state of the United Nations is evaluated uh, for their human rights compliance across all the major treaties. And then they're given recommendations non-binding recommendations. Each state gets to present their own case. Each state gets to choose which of those recommendations they're going to take on board and which ones are not. It's very political. It sometimes produces really laughable results, right? Like United Kingdom, you should abolish your monarchy. Okay. If If you don't want to take the universal periodic report into consideration as a data point, I understand that. That, you know, I get that. But all the Almost all the other reports that the UN Human Rights Council considers are produced by independent experts, either they're produced by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, or they're produced by one of the special procedure mandate holders. Um, And what special procedure mandate holders are, are they are independent experts, they're not employed by the UN, they don't even receive uh, a stipend, they receive a per diem when they're on mission, but that's it. the states elect them to be an independent voice to do assessment, and so they're they're really supposed to be people who aren't beholden to any one state, um, and people who aren't really, um, really engaged on the ground in in a particular stakeholder group or approach to a situation or or um, a state. There are 14 states right now that have special procedure mandate holders uh, dedicated to their situation. It's it's countries like Burundi and and Belarus and the DRC um, and and Palestine has one that's dedicated to it for the occupied Palestinian territories, which is where you get complaints about anti-Israel bias is always against the special rapporteur. Um, it's really quite interesting to me because um, normally when you're choosing someone for a special rapporteur, it's somebody who has a, a large body of work behind them on a particular topic, right? So uh, all five members of the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights have a large body of business and human rights relevant public work behind them. They're, they've published, they've done it in practice, they've worked with different stakeholder groups um, and have gained international respect when it comes to occupied palestine the special rapporteur they they sometimes have some background but generally speaking they don't and that's because any any serious or voluminous uh background in that area is going to be read as having a bias in one way or the other um so like i i would never be qualified to to be the special rapporteur on the occupied palestinian territories uh because i've looked at this issue too much for that kind of a thing. Um, Those independent experts then do the work of human rights due diligence, right? Like they are looking and assessing reports that are on the ground. Um, They talk to all the stakeholder groups. They generally are not allowed to go to Palestine because Israel doesn't give them the visas to get in or, or the right to enter for the purpose of these visits. Um, but they do what they can with what they have and they produce reports. Uh, Reports that Israel can always respond to via the UN Human Rights Council, so they can always put on the record their response or their views. They can also inform the reports themselves. They, They tend not to, but they have that as an option, which gives them greater access to and greater influence in the reports than any Palestinian organization outside of the state of Palestine's representatives at the UN. To discard reports either from those independent experts or from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights is to really limit yourself in terms of objective, expert-driven analysis about the situation on the ground. Um, You're not going to get objective, independent assessment of facts on the ground if you are excluding the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights the UN Independent Special Procedure Mandate Holders, or so those, those special rapporteurs on Israel, um, or the UN Human Rights, or UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights, which has done work around this, um, and who've profits. Like, who are you going to at that point to get independent assessments? Uh, so when you put all of that together, what... What Morningstar has done with state Olympics is to cut its legs off, right? Like there's you once you do this with one situation like this, you compromise the integrity of your process and you compromise the integrity of your reputation across all but, the other range of ESG assessments that you hold do. That,
0: hold that thought because I want to come back to that at the very end. Okay. I will say on this question of of naming the UN this way and what it means, I mean we talked about earlier effectively by saying you shouldn't presume there's a human rights problem, assume that everything's fine, um, which is counterfactual. Effectively, this is this is again, buying into what is a narrative of the government of Israel and defenders of Israel around the world, which is nothing from the UN can be trusted because anything that the UN touches is anti israel anti-Semitic. So it's, it's essentially Morningstar and sustained analytics putting their finger on the scale in favor of delegitimizing the entire, the entire, um, Body of work, anything that has to do with the UN, um, in in the name of being fair, <laughs> we're going to join in in delegitimizing everything, um, yeah. which I think is a fairly strong strong statement to make in the name of being fair. Um, I, I want to move on to number four. We, you you sort of started to go into anti-Semitism. I want to read the point here and then let you react to it. Okay. Point number four: sustainalytics. Quote, Sustainalytics will provide ongoing anti bias and anti Semitism training to research staff, including analysts, to continually work towards a goal of not having anti Israel bias in sources and terminology and bolster in house expertise with staff members focused on human rights and conflict zones. So this sentence literally conflates anti Semitism. With anti-Israel bias, and basically says we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make it a a part of our program to make that conflation formal and 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 part of our our how we move forward on this. So can you can you talk about what that means? Yeah,
1: let me start by acknowledging that anti-Semitism is a serious issue globally. It is an issue within the human rights world. It is an issue within the pro-Palestine movement. And that's true of all forms of racism, right? There's not an area of society, there's not an area of practice in which you don't have to be on your guard against racism. And anti-Semitism is a form of racism. Um, and globally right now, we are in a really fraught situation, right? Like it, it feels like every time Elon Musk deplatforms one neo-Nazi, he wants to replatform somebody else. I, I am deeply uncomfortable with where the world is right now when it comes to anti Semitism and I have deep fears for my Jewish friends and colleagues as to what is happening in the world. And so we do need to be on guard around anti Semitism. Generally speaking, we need to be on guard on it within human rights, and we need to be on guard on it when we talk about Israel and Palestine. So. I'm glad to hear that they want to have anti Semitism training, but what they're talking about isn't anti Semitism training. Uh, and I'm saying that because the international definition, the working definition on anti Semitism internationally that's been endorsed um, and is largely accepted says that criticism of Israel is fine, so long as you are holding Israel to the same standard that you would hold every other state to. Now, it used to be difficult to prove. For a lot of people that they were holding Israel to a uniform standard that they would hold all other states to, because there's not a lot of military occupations in the world, right? So so when we talk about occupation globally, um, prior to, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you had Russia's occupation of Transnistria in Moldova, Russia's occupation of South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia, um, Turkey's occupation of northern Cyprus, Western Sahara's ocu- sorry uh, Morocco's occupation of western Sahara. And then at various points, you had potentially um, U.S. occupation in, in various parts of Iraq or Syria um, for, for temporally defined periods of time and U.S. occupation of Afghanistan for a temporally defined period of time. With all of those, the situations are a little bit they're, they're distinct from Israel. They are in terms of the facts, in terms of the scale and gravity of the situation. Um, they were occupations, they, they need to be held to account for occupations, but they also didn't have the large levels of, of buildup of settlements around um, around industry and the use of industry and economics in, in furthering the occupation. Now, Morocco has started to catch up to Israel in that sense. And Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine and its military occupation of Eastern Ukraine since 2014 gives you a baseline, right? So the question for Morningstar, the question for all of us is, are you applying the same standard to Israel that you would expect of Morocco and Western Sahara and that you would expect of Russia and Ukraine? And I can't answer that question for Morningstar. That's, that, that's some deep soul searching that they need to do for themselves. I will say that the standard, I have done that soul-searching, right, like um, I I work around anti-racism in my work, I've been a proponent of understanding anti-racism within the field of business and human rights, Um, and I take it seriously because I understand the gravity of anti-Semitism in the world, Um, so I, when I do my assessments, I ask myself the tough questions, right? would I say the same thing if this wasn't Israel? If we were talking about Denmark or we were talking about the UK, how would I react if if this wasn't the context? And when I do that, then I set that that's when I'm able to set and, and assess how much am I allowing racism that exists in the world, racist narratives that exist in the world to influence my analysis. And that's what Morningstar should be training. It's not a matter of training that criticism of Israel equals anti Semitism, because that's not even what the anti Semitism definition says. That's not what the legal expectation is. The standard is are you treating Israel as you would any other state in this context? And when I do that work, I come down to a conclusion that the situation is one of the gravest in the world. I don't rank like, I'm not somebody who ranks atrocities in the world. So like BuzzFeed's top 10 human rights violations like is never gonna come from me. But I will say that I tend to have tears around, you know, like a tier of states that I am deeply concerned about or situations that I find deeply troubling. Um, and for me, the situation in Israel and Palestine rates right, up there with the situation in the Central African Republic, the DRC, Myanmar, China with the Uyghurs, and Russia, Ukraine, uh, and and moving outside of sort of conflict affected areas, Venezuela, and and the DPRK.
0: Um, that's- I that for, for people who are listening, the, the the definition that you're referring to is something that we've spent a lot of time working on. Um, it's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition, working definition of anti-Semitism. I will say that it, it it's a little bit ironic hearing it referenced here in this what seems like a positive way because you know generally the line about Israel being held to not be held a different standard is 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 used to basically argue that anytime you're criticizing Israel you're holding Israel to a different standard and therefore it's anti-semitism right there's always a what about well Israel may be bad but what about and fill in the name of the worst evildoer in the world you say it's obviously anti-semitic what what I think a lot of us have concluded in our analysis is this, this double standard issue effectively means that when there is a universal standard and Israel will score badly on that universal standard, we are now going to call it anti-Semitic to not hold Israel to a different and, and, and you know unique and arguably lower standard. Um, if it's going to mean that Israel will be criticized. If Israel comes out well, that's fine. If it comes out badly, it must be held to a different standard. And that seems to be what we're driving at here with this, this point from Morningstar. Yeah, no,
1: I think that that's exactly right. I think Morningstar is adopting a lens for Israel that it would never apply to Syria, to Lebanon, to Ukraine. Um, And that's deeply troubling because the entire purpose of having these sort of analytical assessments of ESG is to provide objective information against the universal baseline. Once you start corrupting that universal baseline with political rhetoric rather than legal assessments, rather than a universal standard, once you start doing that, you undermine the entire purpose of the exercise and you undermine its integrity. I mean, I, at this point, look, Morningstar is one of those companies that never sort of reached my radar, um, which means that it's a perfectly acceptable, fine, middling country uh, company, right? Like when it comes to business and human rights, I knew that they existed, but I didn't give them a great deal of thought. And for me, that's like a huge compliment to a company, right? Uh, because, you know, the shells and the Unilevers and, and the totals are across my desk every single week in and out because they do horrible, horrible things. So the fact that Morningstar was sort of like, oh, I know you exist, but I don't really care about you was great. And now it's one of those companies that I'm just like, oof, I, you, you can't trust what they're doing because of how mired they've gotten in this, like how they, how they don't understand what anti-semitism is how they don't understand what human rights is how they don't understand what an occupation is How they don't understand what palestine is how they don't i will say use,
0: using is. the framing they don't understand i think is very generous um given given the controversy that's right. led up to this because yeah, I, yeah. I i, I mean, do feel that much of this feels quite quite deliberate and and, and cynical um, they don't
1: want to understand right because wanting to understand upsets people yeah and and i get that like everybody wants to be liked
0: um I think I do think also, though, it's worth I mean, I, I've gone back looking at, you know, the reports from um, Zahor Legal and Reut from 2016, I think it was the Israeli organization. And it's interesting because there were people who who were looking at what was then called um Uh, socially responsible investing, CSR, which became ESG, and who are making the argument nearly, you know, this goes back almost 10 years ago now, saying we have to be really careful because if Israel is held to the standard, Israel is going to get called out. So we have to find a way to subvert these standards. ASAP, we can do that by calling it anti-Semitic, calling it BDS. We cannot permit Israel to be held to these standards or there's going to be, you know, absolutely uh, unbearable pressure. We cannot permit that. Um, so they saw that coming
1: <laughs> I mean good on that at least somebody's doing the analysis correctly right like it's clearly not yeah. Morningstar e- even if they're um, doing it
0: for, for 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 bad results for, for bad purposes uh, but they're honest but least, and they were honest you know, they were very clear that that was what they were yeah expecting.
1: when we're talking about Morningstar which isn't even doing it competently um yeah. then then you know uh I don't give props to people I disagree with like it like people who I think are doing things for morally repugnant reasons very often, but props for at least predicting the reality of a situation, understanding and the reality of a situation. And right? I give
0: them props for being honest about what they were doing. That wasn't like, oh, this is gonna be misunderstood. We're gonna to have to explain Israel's case better. It was, this is going to be dangerous for Israel. We have to subvert it. So I give, I give yeah. props for the honesty there. Yeah, I mean. Um, I wanna to get to the fifth point and then I wanna hear your sort of broader conclusions, which I keep interrupting you and you hint at, because I think that's, we're gonna end at the broader implications. So the last point from Morningstar, I'll quote, Morningstar will seek advice regarding its assumptions, sources and use of language from independent recognized experts in international law, including international human rights law, who are well versed in the policy, security, history, and religious and legal context of the Israeli Palestinian dispute. And I wanna just emphasize those last three words, Israeli-Palestinian dispute. So we've moved away from, we've dropped occupied as language, and now we're not even calling it a conflict or an occupation or a conflict-affected area, anything. We're calling it a dispute, which is the language that has long been preferred by advocates of greater Israel. Essentially, this is disputed territory, not occupied territory, which is language that presupposes in, at minimum an equal claim to land, if not potentially a stronger Israeli claim, which is a dispute that just has to still be, you know, somebody has to adjudicate it. So can you talk about this this last point and where this framing leaves things? Yeah,
1: so let's start with it's not a dispute, it's a conflict and it's an occupation. There, these these words have legal definitions to them. And the thing about legal definitions is you check off the boxes, right? You look at the elements, are they there? And if all the elements are there, then you have your answer. And if they're not, then you look for other definitions, right? Uh, So if you want to talk about burglary in the States, um, I used to be able to rattle this off really easily. um, But I think it's like the breaking and entering of the dwelling of another with intent to take from them permanently. Something like that, right? And so you look like, is it the dwelling of another person or is it your own dwelling? If it's your own dwelling, it can't be burglary, right? So so that's that criteria, that sort of elements-based checklist that you have in domestic law, you also have an international law. Um, And when you do that, you have simultaneously an armed conflict and an occupation. And to pretend that it's anything else, to lower that criteria so that it's a dispute misrepresents the situation that's on the ground. Um, There are lots of disputes within international law that don't involve conflict, that don't involve occupation, that don't involve war. You can even have territorial disputes that don't involve conflict, don't involve occupation, don't involve war. Uh, So there's, I forget where the island is exactly, uh, but it's Canada and Denmark and every now and then one of them goes and like sticks her flag in the ground and leaves a little treat for the other side because they both claim the same little island, right? That's a dispute. It's an adorable dispute, right? Like in in international law, that's the kind of dispute I always want to see is I'm like, thank you like for just, you know, making your claim and then moving on and and not firing weapons at each other. Um, There are lots of other kinds of disputes as well. You know, the Gambia is currently challenging Myanmar before the International Court of Justice through a legal case, because that is a dispute. Um, and they're doing so over the issue, by the way, of, of, the, of the genocide of, of the Rohingya. Um, once you start talking about an armed conflict, using those terms matters. It, it matters in terms of portraying the factually accurate situation on the ground. It matters in terms of portraying your seriousness about getting this right um, and your understanding of the law. And so to, to treat this as a dispute um, is disingenuous.
0: It, it also suggests in this ways. case, I would say taking, it is a taking of sides. It effectively yes. is, it is, is, is again, putting your finger, It's if the idea is that you're trying to have the most fair approach to this, adopting a position that takes rights away from the party that has rights under in national law and gives rights to the party that doesn't have them under in international law, is, is not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of taking sides.
1: Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And and you're doing so um, in a way that suggests that the borders aren't settled, right? So that's what validating this to dispute is. We don't know where the borders are. It's really difficult. Like, how can you possibly settle that? Um, it's settled. International law, The the international law that established the state of Israel that gives it legitimacy, is the same international law that defines its borders and its standards, right? So everything outside of that becomes occupied Palestinian territory, or in the case of the Golan Heights, occupied Syrian territory. Um, there's no way around that. There's no way to avoid that if you want to exist in the reality that we all are supposed to be existing in. Now I recognize that physics will have whole discussions around whether or not there are alternative realities. Lawyers don't deal with that right like lawyers deal with like what is in front of me. What are the facts here. And when when we're talking about that when we're talking about the reality that you and I exist in right now. This is this is a conflict. It's an occupation. Those are your terms. That's your legal standard.
0: So I wanna go down to the sort of like, that's it. We, we went through the five points, we've covered a lot. I've actually, this, this podcast has gone on significantly longer than a normal podcast Bye. because I just have so many things I wanna ask you and I'm so, we're so honored to have you with us today. So I wanna talk about the implications of this, both for Palestinians and Israel and for more broadly ESG work. And I'm actually gonna quote here and I'll put a link in the notes uh, with this podcast to the thread that you tweeted out, sort of laying out some of your initial thoughts about the Morningstar um, decisions. Um, But one of the things you said, and I will quote, is that Morningstar has, quote, embedded a racist anti-Palestinian approach into its ESG research in an effort to combat concerns about another form of racism, anti-Semitism. You cannot combat racism and human rights violations by embracing a different type of racism and human rights violations. And if your ability to assess and respect Israeli rights requires ignoring and abusing Palestinian rights, you again demonstrate professional incompetence. So hold that thought I want you to talk a little more about that. But then looking more broadly at the implications of this for ESG work writ large for the sector, um, I want you to talk about what this Morningstar set of policies means as a model or a precedent for how this kind of work goes forward, where in effect it looks like if you have a squeaky enough wheel and you know enough powerful, financially backed, politically backed advocates coming in and saying, you have to use my framing, you have to reject this language I don't like, you can only use experts that I approve of, what that means for the sector. And here I'm going to quote you again elsewhere in your thread. You said, quote, the policy changes from Morningstar show such a lack of competence in business and human rights, international law and human rights standards as to raise questions about the company's basic competence to do ESG research. So in this final answer, if you want to talk about those two things, Israel-Palestine and writ large, and then anything else you want to say that I should have asked you.
1: Okay. Thank you. Um, Let me start with the thing that you should have asked, which you actually sort of did, but I forgot to answer, which is divestment. Um, Divestment is a legal consequence if you are a business who is causing or contributing to a human rights violation. Um, it's, It's the thing that if you cannot get your partners to stop doing bad things, you have to divest from them. And in the situation of Israel, the legal infrastructure is such that there is no company that has the power to make Israel change its its state policies towards Palestine, and as a consequence, you you have to divest from it. Um, and I don't use that in a political term, right? Like like I'm not saying you have to engage in BDS. I'm saying you have to divest because it's a legal consequence of engaging in wrongful action and being unable to influence or change that wrongful action. So I just want to be really clear. About About that. Um, And so to take divestment off the table, to not reference it, not discuss it again, it it, and this wraps into that question around um, ESG as a sector.
0: Right. And and just to remind people that this came up in Morningstar Point Number Three, where it's a limiting mention of divestment activities, right? Not only not going to talk about referencing BDS, but divestment activities in general, limiting reference to them.
1: Yeah. And so if you're if you're limiting that sort of reference or limiting that advice, you're not showing seriousness around these issues. You're not showing competence on on the U.N. guiding principles. You're not showing competence on business and human rights. And that goes to this question about this sector and what this means as a model. Um, So it's hard to talk about professional responsibility when it comes to ESG, because generally when you're talking about professional responsibility, there is a professional body that has a framework of standards for, for its participants. And ESG doesn't quite have that yet, right? So they have lots of standards. They don't have a professional body that says, you know, you're disbarred because you're bad at this. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have professional responsibility. It doesn't mean that there's not a standard for competence within this region or within this area. And um again, from a from for the S perspective, the competence is measured at a minimum from compliance with the U.N. guiding principles and your ability to assess against that as the benchmark. And if the sector is going to give that up, if the sector is not going, if the sector is going to start allowing politics to dictate its assessments, the entire purpose of the exercise is compromised. Um, and, And, you know, investors are using this as a tool to determine where they want to invest, how they want to invest, because they are driven by an ethical set of standards around their activities, right? Um, I, I recognize that a lot of US states are trying to attack ESG. From an international legal perspective, the business responsibility to respect human rights exists independent of the state's own willingness to respect human rights. So the fact that there are actors within the US that don't want to abide by an international standard does not give Morningstar the ability to maneuver or manipulate themselves out of abiding by the guiding principles. Um, And so, and that's true for the sector at at large, right? If for the sector to sort of capitulate in these circumstances and allow for political rhetoric to corrupt an, an independent assessment against an international benchmark, is to really undermine their entire purpose. Um, I don't, I don't understand how Morningstar can hold itself out as an ESG firm if they don't have the basics of the S right. Um, and that's the same for if, if we're talking about environmental standards and they said we're not going to pay attention to whether or not a company is a fossil fuel company. I mean, okay, but then what are you doing with the E, right? And that's the same thing with with the human rights side in the S, if you can't show the basic competence, go find another job. Like, I mean, go, go do another business because this isn't your field and you're undermining the trust that investors place in you. Um, Financial security and how we use our money is significant. It's, it's serious work for serious people. And it demands a level of objectivity and a willingness to sort of stand your ground and say, this is, you know, this is a line and this is a standard. And Morningstar hasn't shown themselves. So it's a really bad model uh, for other investors and I, or other ESG analysts. And I really worry about what the sector is going to become if this becomes the norm. Because if the norm is, politics dictates. I mean, we all know what the political landscape is. We don't need an analyst for that. We can just pick up a newspaper.
0: Um, I I would also say, arguably, it's not merely that it undermines the ESG work. It actually becomes a factor in the violations. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary when you dig into what Morningstar has done with these decisions, it effectively has now become a legitimizer of policies that violate human rights. Not only is it not actively monitoring them and doing anything to prevent them, it's actively facilitating them.
1: Yeah. So I've done some of the only work around the meaning of cause and contribute under the guiding principles, and there are five factors that influence this: like your power and independence in a situation, the mitigation steps that you take to limit your harms. If if those harms flow through another another um, body or another entity. And then uh, the severity and predictability of the harms, right? So if you take those five factors and sort of put them each on a continuum of, of the lowest level is called directly linked to you don't owe reparations in those circumstances to causation. And you sort of met it out, you can, you can you can decide whether or not a business is causing or contributing to human rights violations. And in this situation, Morningstar, the the violations are highly predictable, right? Like there is supposed to be an assumption about uh, human rights abuses being routine in an armed conflict situation for a reason. It's very predictable. We're talking about war crimes, crimes against humanity. Um, We're talking about torture, arbitrary detention, and forced disappearances, um, and and, um, arbitrary killings. Uh, In addition to a wide range of other rights, like the right to water and the right to food and the right to housing, they're all under attack Uh, by the establishment of the settlements in in Palestine, in addition to other forms of of, um, activity by the Israeli military. So you have severe severe predictability, severe severity of the harms, um, and no mitigation measures because you're not applying heightened due diligence and all the power and all the independence to do this on your own. And that means that at this point, that facilitation moves Morningstar from being linked to violations on the ground to really contributing to them. Meaning Morningstar is starting to get to a point where it owes reparations and it has a choice to make and it needs to make it really fast. And that's, are you going to continue to be complicit in this? Or are you going to start to assess appropriately and do your job and I recognize that I would not want to be in that situation right like I nobody wants to be under attack uh for doing their job but that's that's the bare minimum and if you can't do that get out of the business right like I have had death threats I've I've had you know attacks against me in this work it's never fun but it's also part of the job and if I couldn't do that I would have I would have and gone a bit a wedding planner, which is, has always been my backup plan to human rights work. And that's kind of my advice to all of Morningstar, right? Like either do your job or find a different one. And, and both of those are equally valid choices in life. But what's not an equally valid choice is doing your job so poorly and so badly. And that's what we're seeing them do. All
0: right. So I think that is a perfect place to leave it. And we're going to stop here. And for folks who stuck with us, for this full little over an hour. Thank you. I, I, I hope you did stick with us because this was just a really fantastic conversation. Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. For the audience, thank you for listening and for watching and for sharing this with all of your friends because everyone needs to hear this and listen to it. Um, don't forget to follow Tara on Twitter and on Mastodon. I'll put those links in the notes with this podcast. And as always, I want to remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can Do this on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you don't miss any of the great content that we're producing all of the time. And with that, we're going to end this here. Tara, thank you so much again. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.